This is Greg Lazinski, and you're listening to Baseball BBQ. Hi, this is Gary Mack of the Mets Musings Podcast, and you're listening to Jeff and Len on Baseball and Barbecue, one of my favorite podcasts, and I know it's one of yours, too. The only problem is, after I get done listening to it, I'm hungry. All right, guys, take it away. Stadium in New York City's borough of the Bronx is losing a famous neighbor. The Polo Grounds, playing field of Harold memory, is about to give way to a housing development. Thus will end one of the most famous chapters in baseball history. Welcome to episode number 46 of Baseball and Barbecue. I am Len Aberman and you are Jeff Cohen. And that made me a little bit sad. Nostalgic, aren't you? Nostalgic. Not not that I was ever at the Polo Grounds, but the Mets did play their first two seasons there. The New York Giants played there. Yes. The Yankees played there. There were boxing matches there, there, football football. games there. And how do we know all this? I, I, I don't know. Why don't you tell us? We know all this because we went to an exhibit. And what was that exhibit called? It was called Home Plate. A Celebration of the Polo Grounds, the birthplace of New York's love affair for its favorite teams. It is at the Morris Jumel Mansion in Washington Heights, Manhattan. The address is 65 Jumel Terrace, New York, New York, 10032. Wanted to make sure we get that in because this is an exhibit. If you are in the area, you should not miss it. The exhibit goes through January 5th. 2020. Uh, I will say it's in Upper Manhattan, near the George Washington Bridge. You can get to it by mass transit. So if you're in the neighborhood, if you're in New York, definitely go see this exhibit. We drove to the exhibit. As a matter of fact, we went the day of the marathon, and we were able to get there. We found parking on the street. It wasn't easy. It, it It's almost like stepping back in time when you get there. There's some cobblestone streets. A beautiful, a beautiful area. Right. Um, and we, we arrived, we, we went with Gary Mack from Mets Musings, or as I like to say, Gary Mack from Mets Musings. And we met the curator, Neil Scherer there, and he could not have been any nicer. What, just a great guy. He explained how he put the pieces together, how he... Explain the pieces. Explain these pieces that you mentioned. They're pieces. They're really art. Right. As he calls them, conversation art. Conversation art. And you might have seen this in memorabilia shops and all that, but it's not just putting together some pictures and a nice frame. He actually made it so it told a story. It was a story on Sandy Koufax. There was a story on the polo grounds. On Lou Gehrig, on Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle, right? There was some some famous games going on there. Some of some of the artifacts there were just amazing. He had a ticket that was dated December seventh, nineteen forty one, and you know this was back in nineteen forty one. That was when Pearl Harbor was attacked. 
but people were at a football game because there was no internet, there was no cell phones, there was a, nobody knew that Pearl Harbor was attacked. They were at this football game, and there was a ticket of that football game right. there. It, it actually was probably an expensive ticket because it said on it it was $2.20, yeah. which back in 1941 was not cheap for a ticket. No, not at all. What what Neil said is that nobody knew that there was a, a, a war going on or that we had been attacked, that they made some announcements to for regiments to report, but that was about it. They, they would call you know the regiment numbers to report, but people did not know until they got home. Exactly. So that was that was amazing. That was the world that they lived in then, you know? These pieces of art. So let, let's explain for a second. And, and Neil will say, we, we have an interview with him. We went on this tour. Well, okay, let me just tell you about the art. For instance, Mickey Mantle. So Mickey Mantle, he has a big picture of Mickey Mantle. And he has all of the tickets from each game in which Mickey Mantle hit a World Series home run. Right. Not only does he have the tickets, and these tickets, guys, you know, now you've got StubHub and you got these paper, t- you know, you print you down print on the computer. Paper, right. You only have tickets you use on the phone. These are beautiful tickets. People, they really, they're, they're artwork. They're artwork, yes. Yeah. And each ticket, had he has the autograph of each pitcher that gave up the home run to Mickey Mantle. Exactly. You're so, talking about Bob Gibson, Barney Schultz, Sandy Koufax, a couple of them. I mean, every ticket is, is accompanied by a autograph of the pitcher who gave a World Series home run to Mickey Mantle. So not only does he take the time, and, and these take months, some of them years, which he tells us, to put together. But So he has to then pay for the autograph, find it. He has to find these tickets then have it all framed. It's beautiful artwork. Len, my favorite piece. There's remember the shot her around the world, Bobby Thompson home run. Yes. Well, that was between the Dodgers and and the Giants. Winner was going to win play the Yankees in the World Series. At the time, the printer didn't know who the, who was going to play them. So there's a a piece where you have the program of the Yankees versus the Dodgers in the '51 World Series. Also, with the piece of the Yankees playing the Giants in the 1951 World Series. So he has the original and the, I guess, the error copy, uh, for lack of a better right. word, on the display. Beautiful. He gave, he get, everybody that comes in gets a tour. He couldn't have been any nicer. I mean, just, we're going to put some of these pictures up on uh, on our Facebook page, yes. we're going to put them up on our website, which is baseball and bbq.weebly.com. So you could see this, but pictures don't really do it justice. I mean, you're, I really, if you're in the area, and actually he told us that some people were flying in to see this, but if you're in this area, it's really worth a, worth the trip uh, to go see this. Just it's baseball history. It really is. Yes, it yes it is. And it's this is these are items that you know you you may not see at Cooperstown. I mean, this is these are things that he put this together. He had to the research that he had to do to find these things and the stories that he tells. Some of that you'll hear in the interview. Also recorded the tour, but we're we're not putting the tour up only because he talks about the artwork, but but you're not seeing it. But the interview so. 
go on the tour, but listen to this interview. Get a taste for this exhibit. I can't say enough about this guy. You've had enough. <laughs> <laughs> but before we play the, play the interview, I want to give our, our information. Number is 516-855-8214. Please give us a call. Leave us a voicemail. Email address is baseballandbbq at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page. We have a Twitter. It's at Baseball and BBQ. And we have an Instagram, Baseball and Barbecue. Barbecue all spelled out. Len, you ready for this interview? Oh, I'm ready. All right, here it is. Baseball and Barbecue listeners, we're here. And and we're doing a, a crossover episode with Gary Mack of Mets Musings. And this is Neil Scherer. He is the curator for this exhibit. Uh, it's at the Morris uh, Jeff, help me out. It's the Morris Jamel Mansion in Manhattan. Yeah. Guys, you please, you got to see this exhibit. This is one of a kind. It's great. Neil, how do you, you come up with this exhibit? It, it just out of decide to do it. Uh, well, I, I love, first of all, I, I love bringing history back. People who, first of all, are, are older who wanted to reminisce about the polo grounds, but even more to bring younger people to know about history. I always loved history, sports history in particular. Um, we actually had a, a gentleman, a Professor Frank Goritti from Columbia come in, and he seemed to rave about it, and I know that because he's sending all the students here to, to talk about it. It's, it's, I, I don't know about you guys, but I've been sort of in some ways frightened when a, when a younger person, sometimes minority, sometimes just a, a, a non-minority kid, doesn't know who Hank Aaron is, or doesn't know who Jackie Robinson is. If I if I told it to my parents, they would tell me that's not a fun. Get rid of me. I don't want you to hang around him. Almost as much as I didn't know that. But but uh, I found that, and it, and it, and at first I was like startled, and then part of it I'm just wondering if it's generational because I'm getting older. I'm almost sixty, or is it um, something that we just don't teach our kids? And I think sports history, and and Professor Garidi agreed with me, should be taught in high schools and things like that. I think, it, I think you could argue that uh, sports has done more for integration, I think, than sometimes Supreme Court decisions. You at least make the argument. Uh, one, of my, one of my great honors was a gentleman, a collector of mine who has some of his works, his loaned some of his works here, uh, asked me to come to, believe it or not, El Paso, Texas in um, uh, 2016 to meet the Texas Western, now UTEP it's called, but Texas Western basketball team that defeated Adolph Rupp's Wildcats. It was the first all-black team to beat an all-white team. Wow, what an honor. I mean, first, I mean, getting to El Paso is not easy, I'll tell you, but getting there. And I got to meet guys like Neville Shedd and, and, uh, and a guy named Worsley, guys who were New York kids who went there. It was so nice to me. And we talked about it, how important. They didn't realize that to them it was just another game. Afterwards, they realized how important it was. And, you know, they were, they were just... Five black kids playing five white kids. They didn't the basketball, and that was a game. But they realized afterwards how much how important it was. It what it did was because of the victory, it sort of set the tone for the SEC to start recruiting black kids, and that's what the Alabamas, the Georgias, the, the Mississippi started to do that. And even more important, maybe, is the general population of schools started to recruit black students. So sports has and I and that piece is one of his favorite pieces. Uh, and you know we, what we did in, in it, we got the uh, obviously we got the autographs of all the players. We actually got the tie um, worn by the coach. Oh, his name escapes me now for for uh, for Texas Western. I'll get it before this is over. Um, also, we had the, the tickets from the championship and the and the um, regionals and the semifinals with the programs, uh, some photographs, some 
yeah, all sorts of interesting things. Oh, we even got part of the court. It was played at the Coe uh, Fieldhouse in Maryland. And we, you know, we learned, and they talk about how they were uh, uh, discriminated against during those years and things like that they played. But, uh, and a few of them went on to the pros for a short period of time. But they're, they're, they're like, um, and incidentally, believe it or not, in a big state like Texas, Texas Western is the only team to win the NCAA championship there. So it's kind of interesting. So I love doing stuff like that to bring history out there. And uh, again, we think we do that as well, or at least unique. The word that I've used, that I, people have always asked me, like, Neil, how do you describe your work? And I think when you're unique, sometimes you have a tough time doing it. We've come up with the idea of calling it sports conversation art. Uh, basically, we said it's conversation art because of uh, the fact that when the person's in front of it, they start talking to it almost. And, and wow, it's certainly the word we love to hear. But even if they have like two different strangers looking at it, they start copying the conversation. I remember Mickey Miller, my father, talking, you know, Lou Gehrig, and they'd start talking to each other. One of the things that happened to me, my, uh, I, I had, uh, I, when, I, when we first started this, I actually was um, watching, I think it was ABC News or something, they were talking about Made in America, Made in America, push Made in American uh, products. So I came up with the crazy idea. I was just getting started in this. I went up, up and down Madison Avenue to all the stores that products were made in America. One of them happened to be uh, Steuben Glass. It sounds German, but it's actually an American-made company out of Corning. And I went in there and I said, I'd love to, you know, you guys have a great product. You should promote the fact that it's made in America and nothing associates with America more than baseball. And they said to me, yeah, that's pretty, and I was very fortuitous because they had just made a contract with Major League Baseball to get the glass batter, glass ball to the MVP of the All-Star game. So uh, they, they brought me down to this area, this huge gallery space in New York, which must be worth, you know, 20000 30000 a month to rent, I don't know. And they said, Neil, we'll give it to you for a month. See what you can do about it. I scrambled because only two pieces at the time. <laughs> Somehow I filled it up with some pieces and also some artwork that related to sports. Anyway, the show was, I call it a win-win-win situation. It was a win for the, for the store because they got more clients. It was a win for the patrons because they got the great show. Uh, and it was a win for me to getting out what I think is telling my story. And, um, and on occasion, you sell these things. Not often, but you do. And the interesting thing was, in New York, uh, I learned very quickly that the guy wearing the ripped-up jeans and shirt could be a billionaire, and the guy with the greatest suit could be a pauper. Uh, and, and, but it's just my nature to talk to people. And when they would come down, I'd say, do you like baseball? And most of them said, yeah, some of them said no. But even the ones who said no, if they gave me a chance, they became my biggest fans because they said, Neil, this isn't, I don't even like baseball, but your stories, they're telling the stories. And that's what I think makes us a little bit different is the storytelling aspect of it. And all these people have great stories, I think. Um, also, uh, the other interesting thing was, uh, from the store's point of view, one day this guy comes down, I don't know who he is. I say, you like baseball? I say, yeah, I give him a 20 minute tour. He runs upstairs. Uh, they come running down, the store, owner, the store owners and pay, what did you do, what did you do? That's the owner. He only spends 30 seconds, he spent 20 minutes with you, what did you do? It's, the next day he calls me up and he acquired uh, two pieces, the Jackie Robinson piece I did and the Hank Aaron. I said, can I ask you why you did that, sir? And he said, well, I'm an Ohio State guy, and I'm a philanthropist at the school, and Jesse Owens, one of our great alumni, and Hank Aaron's a personal friend of mine. And I said, wow. And anyway, after that, uh, I, he's, uh, his whole office at this point now is with all Ohio State pieces I did. So it's kind of neat to, to, find, to do things like that. And, um, and I have clients all over the country now, and we're also being asked to do things like, I said, the Texas, the Texas Western piece, which is a real honor to do that is to do more and more things like that. And I'm always working on things, despite what I have here. And it's nice when I do, another reason I guess I like doing these, these shows besides from history is I get to see 
pieces back that I made because <laughs> I loaned back to the show and uh, they're back to where they belong for temporarily anyway. And um, uh, I'm, but I'm working a lot. One of one of the a number of pieces I'm working on right now is uh, it's been about five years, but I don't know what you guys think is the greatest individual uh, game record in all of sports. What would be your guess? What's in in, in all sports? Uh-huh. Don't even think the ones you you're most th- you, you know best. What is it one game individual record that I think is the greatest individual one game record? That's a tough one. I mean, you can argue you know, Reggie Jackson three home runs. Okay. I would say uh, maybe O.J. Um, Simpson. O.J. Simpson. Okay. Uh, Not what I'm thinking, but Sean Green nineteen. Okay. Uh, again, you're, you're again in all sports, not baseball. No, I, I, know I know. I know. You're you're coming up there. Okay. <laughs> but but by by saying it the way I am, uh-huh. it's kind of indicating yeah, it's not in baseball. Right. right. Okay. To me, it's Will Chamberlain's 100-point oh, game. 100-point game. I think from an individual point, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah. And the history behind it is really special in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Did you yeah. say that? Yes. Yeah. So it doesn't even – back then, you know, basketball wasn't like today. Even with a guy like Chamberlain, it's hard to believe. He, was, he had to be like a guy you had to see. I mean, he's incredible. And they would go around the country, and they played in Hershey. By the way, before that game, because that wasn't enough, they had the New York Giant – uh, no, the Philadelphia Eagles put a Baltimore Colts. Uh, they had the whoever was in the championship game in 1960. I think the Eagles won in '60. I don't. I, it was a, they had them play a, a, like a, a celebrity basketball game before the, 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 the hundred point game. Interesting. So I got the ticket from that. It's very. I mean, we're talking tens. Of, you know, over ten thousand dollars, and it's not even the, the perfect ticket. Apparently, they say about forty six hundred people at the game. Who knows? I think, and I, if I recall correctly, there was like one reporter there. Yeah, yeah, something like that. And, and it might have been on radio. Uh, I was fortunate. Yeah. I, I'd written letters to a couple of guys who played in that game. They'd written back to me. Uh, so to try to get some information that way. Um, and uh, I, at this point, I've gotten the ticket. I'm, I've gotten a few great photos. I've gotten the banner that supposedly was over Hershey the Park. And I'm getting the autograph of all the players who played in that game, not just Chamberlain. Um, and so... You know, I try to do things like that that I think are creative. People ask me, when, what do you, how do you decide what to do? Or do you think about it? So, something comes to me. And, uh, you know, I could flip these things, which is probably what a memorabilia would do. Mm-hmm. But I just want to tell the story. And right. sometimes we have problems figuring out, like, when to stop. Or, 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 you know, if I can't get something I really want, what's a valid substitute? And people commissioning me to do things. A gentleman, uh, and, and a lot of them in the art world, said, you know, I love it to do. My favorite player is Walter Payton. Can you do a Walter Payton piece? And it's actually written up in one of the blurps here about that. And I try to tell the story of Walter Payton, one of the great players of all time. So I, I've got a few things I want to, I'm still working on. I'm doing a piece on the all 27 Yankee world uh, champions. I have, a ticket for, I have a ticket from each one of the, the, the winning things. So I'm doing that and doing and probably another piece on the 61 Yankees, which we have done before. Uh, and uh, anyway, and I'm always coming up with ideas to. How about a, a piece on the '73 Mets coming up? In uh, a couple of years will be the 50th anniversary of that. That's uh, true. That's true. Yeah, that, that's an improbable year. Generally, we do for the champions when winning the whole thing, but they did win the National League pennant. So yeah. there. So that that is something there. We we did a piece on the '69 Mets, mm-hmm. and we're working on another one because. In one way, it's the 50th anniversary. One thing that's kind of interesting, guys, is we th- that's a very interesting year because it was the first of the Mets, the Jets, and, and uh, the Knicks. The Knicks. Yeah. You know, what is the closest that we've ever had to that? What is the closest New York prior to that? Did we oh, miss? 
prior? Yeah, said? what is the closest in New York first-time winners? Uh, I found this out. And, and it's Yankees and Rangers? Close. 1927. The, the Rangers win the first time. The New York Football Giants win the first time. And the Yankees win for the second time. Oh. But it's close. Yeah, yeah. And so I thought, that, I thought that was the closest thing to the 50th anniversary of yeah, this right. in terms of that. And interestingly, it's 27. So it's, no, it's not. It wouldn't be that. It's, but it's interesting how that doesn't happen. But I was kind of lucky in some ways. I, I born in 1960. So I always tell people I, I was pretty much picked up on sports pretty quickly. The first game I remember, believe it or not, my father, you know, uh, generally when we want to teach a sports, probably the best way to do is watch a game and explain the rules. Them. Guess which game my father picks? 1966, the New York Football Giants play Washington, 71 to 42. It's still considered the most, the highest scored game. And Sam Huff was so pissed off at the Giants, he called the timeout with like four seconds to go so he could get another field goal. Wow. I mean, it's unbelievable. So my poor father is trying to explain, and he's probably, it's probably like how, similar to how maybe people felt in London this summer when they saw the Red Sox and Yankees playing, it was like 16 to 14. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it wasn't, but I probably was like, wow, this is pretty exciting, <laughs> you know. Like, nobody does it. So it's 71 to 42. It's still can, the highest scored single game. So maybe that just was meant to be an omen that I would love these records and things right. like that. I also, you know, the other thing that's pretty amazing, my father takes me to a baseball game. Uh, it was a game that Mantle hit the home run. I'm trying, and I don't know if they have this. Guess what happens? Mantle hits the home run, I think in the second third inning, he comes up again. Over the loudspeaker, Bob Shepard goes, Mr. Mr. Marty Marty Shishira. That's my father. I think my father's gonna pinch it for Mickey Mantle. I'm like seven years old. I can't believe it. This is the most exciting moment of my life. My father was startled, of course. Turns out our car my father's car was broken into the police had done. I don't know if they would have done that today. So this is when I kind of knew that maybe sports, if I look back at it, I was a very shy, quiet kid. Believe it or not, I'm pretty I'm shy, but I, it, it, with my babies, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'll talk about it. Right. So anyway, um, they wanted me to go with my father. I said, no, I'm watching this game. And he was shocked, too, because he never saw it. I, I'm staying for this game. I don't care what the damn car, whatever, anything. And um, the Yankees or somebody drove me home uh, from the same. This is in 1968. Uh, it went, I think, 12 innings, and Brooks Robinson hit a home run to, to win it for them. Uh, or Frank, one of the others, and it was like I said to myself. But I, I'm always curious if the if I could go to Yankees, if they have on tape. I doubt it. The Bob Shepard, because Bob Shepard in 1968 must have been there only about four or five years or something like that. I don't think he, I think that was, he was a young Bob Shepard at that. But that voice was always. Sure. But I still remember, Mister Mister Marty Marty Shearer. Dad, you're pinching for Mickey Mantle. <laughs> yeah. Now these pieces that you put yeah. together, yes, for for our listeners, that we're going to put pictures up on our Facebook yeah. page. We're going to put Please pictures do. on our on our website, but they're remarkable. I mean, you have you have tickets, you have autographs, yes. you have. Um, yeah. it, how long does it take you to put one of these well, together? When we, when we work together, uh, we, it can take us anywhere from six months to like years to get together. Once in a while you get a, you know, a bunch of tickets together or you get a bunch of autographs, but generally you gotta go looking all over the place. And then we also like to do a little bit of our own style, like for example, the Lou Gehrig piece, as I've noted before, the image that we take is not a photograph, but a painting. And I think people, wow, they can't believe it. It's very much photorealism. Uh, also, um, you know, just, just looking at, uh, you kinda notice what the, the wow factors when people are looking at our pieces and understanding what they're seeing, and that's always uh, rewarding from my point of view 
Wow is one of those unsophisticated words, but when it's said, you know you connect it with the person. You, so. What I really love about some of these pieces here, you have the tickets. Yes. Uh, first of all, the price of tickets, you know, you know people obviously. Love, people love to look yeah. at that. Yeah. But we don't have that anymore. Yeah. That's going to be a lost, you know, art. For, yeah, for, yeah. For, no, I hate that. When, I, when you buy... When you buy tickets now in StubHub or something, I think if you get season tickets, maybe you still get quality photo tickets, but, and it's paper, and I'm thinking you're spending this much money, and it's the one thing that, and I think the teams are losing out because it's one way for the teams to talk about their history based on tickets. I think tickets should be something that they spend a lot of time with instead of a little time. I think it just benefit them. Right, but, I'm, I'm, I'm getting tickets to go to a game. I have to print it out on my, on, on my computer. Now I get it on my phone. But these tickets are, you know, some of them really could be considered a work of art. I mean, great. I love it, like the 63, 63 ticket. One. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, by the way, one of the tickets is pretty interesting on the Lou Gehrig when people, I don't know if I mentioned this before, in, in, his, in his World Series home runs, one of the famous games that's a home run is the game that supposedly uh, George... Uh, uh, babe, the Babe pointed in Chicago, Wrigley Field, against Charlie Root. Right. Now we talk about that. Garrick hit two World Series home runs that day. Right. And nobody talks about that. Yeah. yeah. But he didn't point. He, he, uh, maybe, he didn't point in the right direction. Let's right. put that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The, the Polo Grounds had a couple of uh, iterations, if you will. One of them burnt to the ground. Yes. And then most of the ones we're familiar with is the, the last. Uh, uh, version of it, if you will, uh, with the Bobby Thompson home run we know from the newsreel yeah. and, and those of us that were lucky enough, if you want to call it that, because it was not in good shape in the 60s yeah. to be there. What, what kind of feedback have you gotten about the, the Polar Grounds itself from people uh, that, that were there? Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, I've gotten... Um We've, we were really fortunate. Uh, there's a couple of gentlemen who've come to the show in the 90s who were at the Bobby Thompson home run and was also at the New York Giants Brooklyn Dodger football game in Pearl Harbor. And, you know, when you're younger, you probably uh, don't know the aesthetic feel about it as, as much of a problem. They all have pretty much indicated it was really great for, for football. It was much better for football viewing than for baseball. I've gotten that sense. And it kind of makes sense if you look at it the way the, the stadium is. I have got also a lot of them thought it was kind of breaking down a little bit, but it didn't bother them. You know, it was part, it was, it was part of their youth at that point. Yeah. They kind of like the one thing that I, I will say that when the Mets came in, uh, I don't know what they did. It was probably just paint, whatever, but they put 300,000 into the public grounds to, to keep it going for two more years or something like that. But most people have fond memories of that. And, and the thing that I'd like to point out is, and I try to bring it up, generally speaking, more events and, and ex exhibits have been done on the Ebbets Field. Yes. And the boys of summer deserve what they do, but my feeling is the Polo Grounds deserves as much credit, if not more, being that they were the home of not just one baseball team, but three baseball teams and, 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 a, and a football team. And then a bunch of other stuff, so boxing and, and things like that. So we're trying to bring that to the attention of New Yorkers, and we're getting people who are flying in from other parts of the country, which is fairly exciting. Yeah. So... Yeah, I, I mean, just the amount of players that played there, the Christy Matthews, oh, yeah. John McGraw, the Bill Terry's, Mel Lockhart, Uncle Willie Mays. Yeah, another. It goes on and on and on. As a matter of fact, from what I understand, Babe Ruth loved the Polo Grounds. Yeah. Uh, he had his first home run at the Polo Grounds, I think, in 1915, 1916 with the Red Sox as a pitcher. Um, and he, believe it or not, it's hard to know now, but his first thoughts, Yankee Sam, when he first went there, was, uh oh, I'm not going to, this is. 
too big. I'm not going to, of course, he proved that wrong, but he was, I think, he, he would have loved to have stayed at the Polo Grounds, I think. The Polo Grounds. I'm sorry. Some would say that the, the right field line was sort of. Oh. In Yankee State, it was kind of, you know, based on the Polo Grounds and for Babe. Well, I will say one thing. One of the things I'm, like, I'm sad and that's not here because of, of the broken glass was the Carl Mays incident, which you touched about. But another thing, we have a great photo where they paint, because of Babe Ruth, they painted the uh, area of the stadium, which that doesn't have a, fa a fair foul pole. They painted it because of Ruth, because there were too many, the umpires having trouble knowing if it was a home run or not. So there's this paint strip that goes up through the stadium. And I have a great photo of that. I'm sorry it's not right now presented. Hopefully it will be soon. No, no. You know what I was going to say? <laughs> I just go on. That often happens to me. Yeah, uh, I think we've, uh, some of the things, if, if I was to be surprised, oh, I think I brought up the fact that we're reaching the 100th anniversary, a couple of interesting moments. It's also, uh, I, I try to give, uh, I, I love the, um, some of the stories about some of the fringe or lesser players. Of course, Harvard, Eddie, we brought up, and Bonehead, Merkel, who I think gets really bad, yeah. <laughs> bad, uh, uh, notoriety is something that, you know, was uh, John McGraw never blamed him for anything and actually loved him. Apparently, he thought he was one of the smartest players he ever had. 19 years old, that's, that's tough. Uh, and uh, who else do we have um, that was there? Uh, the football, I think, is something that I wish I had a little bit more to do. I would have, uh, I've met a couple of guys who played football uh, at NYU who played at the Polo Grounds. I think it would be cool to have had done more with Notre Dame coming in Fordham, certainly. They had some teams that were nationally regarded. And, you know, I think it's a shame that we don't have college football in New York. I think I brought that up. Saturdays is, you know, I mean, I get to watch my University of Wisconsin Badgers, you know, and things like that. Also, um, so I, I would have probably liked to have done a little bit more with that college football here um, and, and just to imagine going to a game. And it's interesting, like I said, to note that in the 30s and 40s, Fordham was outdrawing the New York football giants. Let me ask you, yes. getting all these autographs yes. from pitchers who threw the home runs, yes. how long did it take you to collect that, or is it uh, loan from everybody? It, you know, when, you know it, it takes a while, but it also depends on it. For example, the Garrick took a lot longer than the Mantle, but it makes sense. We're talking the 20s and 30s, and Grover Cleveland Alexander is not easy to get. And then you kind of want to have good examples, too. Uh, as I talked about, the signatures become kind of important. And, you know, people love to see them and all that stuff. The one autograph I'm a little disappointed, if I will say, is Willie Mays' autograph. If you look at it, it, it I, I, let's, let's move over here for a second. And it's authentic and everything. I don't know, would you know that that's what... I would not know if that's Willie Mays. Yeah, but that's how he did it, and we've got, we've got mm. the authentication. I don't know if he's going quicker or whatever. But I wouldn't, I would, uh, I, I prefer the, I think Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, Mickey Mantles, they had great autographs. They were fun to get. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one I'm not as, as excited about. Uh, and then uh, I think people get it charged with the fact that, you know, we're able to incorporate like Ed Sullivan into our, our yeah. pieces and things like that. So we, we have a little bit of everything. I get a lot of the, I think people respect the research and sometimes you get lucky. Mm. Uh, one of the pieces we get lucky is, of course, is the, the autograph of Johnny Nee. Uh, not the, uh, the, the check made out to Johnny Nee. And, you know, to think that he was the chief scout who signed guys like Bill Dickey, I didn't know about that. I thought that was pretty cool. And you could find him in some old Yankee photographs. He sent some of the, uh, some okay. of the photos uh, at that time. 
Um, you know, so uh, what else is there? How, how rare is it that Harvey Keene made that last album two no-headers, something like Sandy Koufax? That, that, that's got to be a very rare It's got to be rare, and it's got to probably mean that Koufax loves seeing Harvey Keene out. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah, you know, but uh, I think I spoke to, uh, I think uh, Art Shamsky told me he made out for at least one no-hitter or something uh -huh. like that, maybe two. But it's, you know, it's it's something you probably want to keep, you, that's not one of the records you want, you know? Now, when you get some of these these items that you pay in advance for, so not only do you have to be artistic and put it all together and a historian, because you have to know all these things and look them up or whatever, but you also have to pay a certain amount of money and you have to determine how much you're willing to pay, how much it's worth. Yeah. How do you figure that out? <laughs> Not very well most of the time. <laughs> I try. I, I, I say something I want. I, I, I generally will pay or even overpay sometimes. But sometimes you need that item or two. Early on, you get lucky. You know, sometimes actually the the uh, some of the um, there's generally one or two higher price ticket items. Pardon the pun in, in my pieces. But sometimes a lesser piece, like for example, the Walter O'Malley wire photo. I don't know, maybe it's $150, $185, $200. I don't know what to pay for it. But I thought that added something very unique to it. So yes, um, generally, there are, P I mean, the valuations are, of items can go, I, I guess I paid up to like 18000 20000 for a single item and stuff like that. But you know what? In some ways, when you think about it, uniforms, Garrick uniforms, obviously great. Roofs uniforms. We're talking in the millions of dollars. Right. So my piece is, in a sense, at ten to fifty, maybe seventy-five thousand, expensive. I can't afford my own pieces. Uh, yet, in some ways, you can show them all the time. You don't have to put them lock and key and things like that. I know a few people have said, Neil, but I think that's I found interesting. Being in the art world, a lot of times I send pieces out on approval. I believe that people, what looks good here, may not look good at home. And I said, here, you got it for a week. You know, they give me a deposit, enjoy it. My my only requirement is. Whatever you have in mind for it, because everybody always has an item in a place in their house. So if it doesn't work there, try it one more place. That's my, my only thing, and it's just good faith. There's no way if I know it. But what I found out with the sports, none of them have been returned. And I think it's partly because it's unique. I think partly it's like, if you take a painting and show it to your friend, that's good, nice, I like it. You got Mickey Mantle, you got Lou Gehrig. I, 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 the, the only problem I will say, and a few people have told me that, Neil, I didn't want. I, I love my piece, but I really didn't want to be the most popular house in the block. Yeah. <laughs> You're ringing like it's uh, it's it's uh, Halloween. Everybody's coming in for for their trick or treat to see your piece. I tell you, some of the, the pieces that you have, yes. the condition of some of the old memorabilia, like the, the programs from the football game and your Giants pennant and the other Giants pennant, the, the programs. Right? They're pristine. Well, so we, we do that, you know, sometimes they're not, you know, I don't look at the grading factor as much as like people who are more, uh, who, who buy tickets just for that reason. As you look, some of my pieces are cut in, in, in irregular ways that may bother people. But I just want to, part of me feels that's real. That's like real people went to the game. Instead well, of the, the, telling the story yeah. with it, whereas other guys are just looking uh, about uh, evaluation investment of purposes. Item. Yeah, I've had a lot yeah. of, uh, as I mentioned, uh, memorabilia people, memorabilia people have come up to me and said, this is great what you do, but it's just too much damn work. You know, they'd rather have, you know, get their ticket and sell it and go into the next piece. And, you know, I'd like to tell, I'd like to do it a little quicker. You know, I'm also uh, an attorney and, a, and an art dealer, so I keep busy. People ask me if what, to, if, what type of an attorney I am, and I 
usually say a pretty good one. But, <laughs> but anyway, after that, I say I actually don't practice law anymore. I only practice my brothers and sisters are in trouble, so let's hope they have a quiet year. <laughs> so anyway, uh, but I love... I'm, and he's a comedian, too. I love it. I try to have fun here, especially... Uh, I think that's another thing. It's part of the entertainment value that people come here. And it's a, what I've also find kind of interesting, I don't know if you guys are finding this out, I think this is, it just, it's not so, such a you know, uh, brilliant uh, thought. More and more women are involved in the game and enjoying the game. We see it by brokers. It's not uncommon for a couple to come in here, man or woman, and the man to say, uh, I'm going to go see Washington Jefferson, and the, the woman to spend the whole time and like get it and understand everything. So I found that a little bit interesting, you know, about that. I don't know if you guys are finding that. Yeah, we... Austin, 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 <laughs> I can't even speak English now. Authentication, getting everything proven that it's authentic. Well, that's all that we use. Uh, the starting point, being an attorney, and we take it, and we, we have not been flawless, uh, but in a way, I'm glad that the, we use James Spence most of the time, who's, I think, Major League Baseball, we think he's the best. And um, in a way, I, I feel better that he's told us a few things are wrong. If he told me everything was right all the time, it's, uh, you know, it's a little yeah. suspicious. So we've had two things that have been wrong. One was a, 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 a Campanella autograph. He said it was a, um, what do you call it? A, um, like the, the, it wasn't to defraud. The, to the it was basically done back then where the, the, the clubhouse boy would, um, right. what do you call those right. signatures? Again, it escapes my mind. But there's a term for that. And, and the Lou Gehrig one that we just had. And, and uh, he said it's wrong. And so, you know, we, we were, you know, the, the Garrick ones hurt financially, but, you know, we got our money back eventually. But as I tell people, it was more the time loss to yeah. get it than it was even, because eventually I knew I was going to get it there because we really wanted to get that done. And I thought for the polo ground stuff, if I had more time, I would have done more with Willie Mays. I might have done like a, a 54 championship team piece. I would have done maybe a few, another giant piece maybe. Um, and... Um, a few more pieces, but we had so little, they only gave us seven months, I and mean, it's hard to put these together. So we lucky we got the New York Football Giants, which I think is an interesting piece in itself. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. How many world champions did the New York Baseball Giants win in public? I, I, I know obviously 54. I think they won five. Five? five yeah, I, think, I think you're right. I think they won five. Yeah. I, think that, I, think they won, I think I read recently they won eight altogether, and I think three were won, won in San Francisco. Yeah, that the 54 was the last one in New York. Yeah. And then until 2010, well, you, they, they you got to remember that Giants were more or less the Yankees up to like yeah. 1923, and John McGraw was the yeah. big guy. Um, and uh, you know, I wonder if he'd kept them in the polo grounds if they were, how they would have done. But they uh, they, they they beat the Yankees. Uh, it, it's, another thing that's kind of interesting I noticed: a lot of times the first year in the stadium, the Yankees won 1923. The first year. They're in the stadium, and they won when the, this new stadium was built in 2000. Right. And also the football giants, first year at Yankee Stadium, 56, win the championship. So yeah. I thought that, that was, doesn't that doesn't relate to the Mets, right? I was going to say the Mets, no, no, the Mets don't have that. So they don't have that. Well, yeah, sorry about that. Yeah. No. You know, I, I um, you know, I, I kind of one of uh, as I said, I was uh, a couple of things that uh, I grew up in Mount Vernon, which is known for its basketball. I grew up uh, about 11 NBA players came. I grew up at. Scooter Rodney McRae, who went out to Louisville and won a championship, and Rodney had a nice pro career. Before that was Gus and Ray Williams, if you guys remember that. And Earl Tatum, who played at Marquette, used to dribble the ball up the street going to school, and I was like an eight-year-old, and I thought, wow, this guy's great. But um, the other story that's kind of fun is that Ralph Branca, and somebody came in one time, and 
And he looked at me, and he's from Mount Vernon. I thought, great. He said, he looks at Brankus. I hated the Brankus. I said, why did you hate the Brankus? He said, they were a bunch of them. He said, the pitching staff at Mount Vernon High was Branka, 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 Branka. My name wasn't Branka. I couldn't get the job. I couldn't get the job. Uh, he actually played basketball at NYU, actually, and did some things like that. Uh, but what's interesting, I'm pretty sure it was direct, and I thought it was interesting. Branka house is sold to a person whose family, he becomes a major leaguer. Really? And that's Kenny Singleton. Really? It went from, yeah. So people have sometimes said to me, Neil, how come you didn't make the major leagues? You couldn't hit a 95-mile-an-hour fastball? You couldn't pitch a 95-mile-an-hour fastball? I said, I was six blocks away from being a major league. And my parents were <laughs> the wrong house. So, anyway. Well, Frank's son-in-law is Bobby Valentine. That's right. And I talked right. to Bobby Valentine. Oh, he, he's, uh, I've done a number, uh, I've done a couple of other shows. And the previous show to this was, uh, and this was uh, Waterbury, Connecticut, at the Mattatuck Museum. And that's, uh, I'll send you guys a video because I do a video tour of that. And it was, it, they contacted me. Uh, they, would, they had some of my paintings. And I said, I just said, I have to write, you know, what, 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 what's town? What, I said, is this Yankee territory or Red Sox territory? And she said, we're the dividing line between the two t- fan bases. I said, why do you do a show? It sounds so natural. And she said, that's a great idea. And they, said, and they called me back a while back. And that time, I would never done any curating. So I just thought it was my idea. And I would give them something. We'll do it, but you have to be the curator. And I took the job, and I did it, and they said it was one of the most successful shows I had, and we had, we had some fun, fun times there. Mm-hmm. And, and as I, I've written to some people, was the, um, was the fact that, uh, you know, um, uh, that in, in, a, in a political climate, which I stay away from my show, I said, if I could get Yankee and Red Sox fans to spend two hours with each other, like it, maybe there's hope for the Democrats or Republicans, right. and then I get back, nice try, <laughs> wishing too much. Um, so that was... Uh, that's something that I, I, I like to do. And uh, so anyway, I love, I love the idea of trying to, and, and as I said, the most rewarding thing is to see the expressions on faces. And the, the wow, and here wow, it, as I say, it's a simple word, but it really means they, they resonate, something resonates with them. Oh, this is a beautiful exhibit here at the Jamel Morris yeah. Mansion up in Manhattan. It's here until when? January? It's here until January 5th or 6th. I'll double it. Now, the only thing I will say is I'm here on weekends. However, uh, there have been more and more schools and trips being, uh, where people, if, if you ever had a group of like eight or ten people during the week, especially during the holidays, I'd be happy to come in uh, if we could arrange that. Mm-hmm. But I'm generally here on the weekends, and uh, I think the show's great without me, but I think like maybe you guys will say that it, I add something to oh, it. Oh, absolutely. There's a ticket here from 1941, December 7th. Uh, between the, I think of the football giants. And the Brooklyn Dodgers. And, and the Brooklyn Dodgers. Led by Ace Parker. Right? Okay. <laughs> and, and who knew? Nobody knew that day Pearl Harbor was bombed. Nobody, and, and how could they? Yeah. And how, the ticket's $2.20, which. Probably a, a good ticket. That seems like an expensive, for 1941, that might have been an expensive ticket. I'm guessing that, uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a pretty good ticket. Uh, I don't know, I haven't really looked at it if it gives you the section or row or anything like that. Section C, row M. You know, you know, somebody would be able to tell us who knows, who knows that area, who know that. I did say, like, we did have some gentleman who came in. I have a, I'll send you a picture of him. Let me see if I have a picture He came in who was at both the, um, the, the, the Bobby Thompson home run in that game. Let me see if I have And uh, he, lo- he was so thankful. Let me see if I could find it. It was, it was like in the last three weeks. There he is. Here he is. He was at the game. Yeah. Above, oh, above. Wow. And he, he was with, with, with Walker or whatever. He had trouble getting up there. He carried him up the steps, believe it or not. Mm. Wish I'd gotten more information from him. I was just surprised. And 
Let me see. Maybe. And I also have images of any of these things if you want them. Here's my Carl Mays piece that unfortunately isn't here because of the broken thing. Uh -huh. It's it's not as it, it looks unfocused. It's not that unfocused. And uh, so anything else? But I thought that was pretty cool. It's amazing. You never know who's going to walk in the door to yeah. see these exhibits. That's right. You don't. And but we want more and more people to come. Right. <laughs> and you know, as I said, it's it's a great. You get a double header in sense. A, a term that's not used that much in baseball anymore because you get a great historical show with Washington and how incidentally the gentleman I think I told you this I don't know uh, Lynn Miranda did I tell you right. this already okay so you know about that so uh, it's a historic museum and that thing and as I always tell people you know with 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 a, with a lineup of Washington Hamilton Jefferson Ruth Garrick and Mantle, you have a damn good lineup to come see here. Come and visit the shop. And it's reasonably priced. Yeah, tell, I think ten dollars. It's ten dollars. I think it's eight dollars for for kids or people over sixty five. I don't know. You could double check. But I also think um, it's you know it's it's ten dollars. I I can't imagine. I mean, going to Yankee game sometimes you're disappointed not, but very rarely can you get tickets that low price these days. And it's it's just. Uh, it's a, it's, and the museum, I think you, you would leave feeling you went, had a, a great time. That's the main thing. It was, uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Excellent exhibit. Thank you, Neil Scher, for thank joining you. us on thank Baseball you. Barbecue and Mets Musings. Yes, thank you so much. Uh, if you're in the New York area, come ne up here. It's near Yankee Stadium. Near Yankee Stadium. Yeah. It's, it's just two, I think it's two stops. So I think you could, the C train, which wasn't working today, I'm putting The C train stops 162. It's, it's a block away. And, um, yeah, it's. I think there are a couple of other stations, but I. The, 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 some people take the A to 145th, take the C to more block stop. So it's it's not that far from. Uh, Very from easy a, to get to. It's a mansion in the in in Manhattan. <laughs> so that's rare yeah. that this this old mansion. The oldest uh, mansion in Manhattan. Right. So you you got to see it. You got to see the exhibit. See the mansion. You got to get here. Thank you very much, Neil Sherman. Yes. Thank, Thank you. you for coming. Once again, we'd like to thank Nia Sher for having us to the exhibit called The Home Plate, a celebration of the polo grounds at the Morris Jamil Mansion in Upper Manhattan, 65 Jamil Terrace, New York, New York. Exhibit runs through January 5th. Please, if you're in the area, definitely take, check it out. Let me give the phone numbers again and the way we can contact us. It's 516-855-8214. Give us an email. It's Baseball and BBQ at gmail.com. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Don't miss that exhibit. Jeff, we've got a big problem. What's that? We have a file. I don't even understand this, but a file corruption. We have corrupt files. That happens. In this day and age, that happens. Yeah, well, this is a big problem for baseball and barbecue, but it did happen. And so, we had gone to the barbecue guru event in Warminster, Pennsylvania, we interviewed Mo Kaysen, Bob Trudnak, Ray Sheehan, and various other barbecue teams. We interviewed Lisa Jo Getter. We interviewed her mother. We interviewed her fiancé. And most of what we, we got was lost. 
last episode, we did have Mark Bavar on, right? Who we interviewed there. Luckily, his was saved. And luckily, we do have part of the Ray Sheehan interview. If anyone listening to this does not know who Ray Sheehan is, let's, let's clue you in on it. Ray Sheehan is the owner and, uh, what do you want to say, manufacturer, uh, sauce maker of Barbecue Buddha. One of the best sauces that you're ever going to try. And we told Ray that our goal is to make him the uh, world dominant sauce. It's not too hard a mission to do, right, Jeff? Uh, no. Sauces, there's not that many popular <laughs> sauces out there, so it should be easy. Easy thing to do. I, I think even if he was in like the top 10, I think he'd be quite happy. Yeah. But we luckily we did salvage part of the interview, and we're going to play it now. As a matter of fact, we, we come in as Ray is talking about his book. He has a book that's coming out, uh, I believe, in April of next year. The name of the book is Award-Winning Barbecue Sauces and How to Use Them, The Secret Ingredient to Next Level Smoking. It's available on, well, it's not available, not available yet. yet. Right. You could pre-order it on Amazon, uh, Amazon.com. It's going to be released, according to Amazon, on April 14th, 2020. And I'm counting down the days till that book comes out because knowing Ray and knowing how great his sauces and his rubs are, this is going to be an amazing cookbook. So now let's listen to uh, the part of the interview that we were able to salvage with Ray. Okay. Oh, the book. So the book, I saw the cover on Amazon for pre-sale. It's coming right. out in April, right? Yes, April 14th. Name That's of the book? Date. Uh, the name of the book is Award-Winning Barbecue Sauces and How to Use Them, The Secret Ingredient to Next Level Grilling by nice. Ray Sheehan. And April, you said April 14th? It's looking like April 14th. That's what they have it listed as currently. So, um, barring any kind of you know, unforeseen circumstances, that should be the date. So it's coming out in time for barbecue season? Just in time, yep. Okay. Um, I Like I said, I saw the cover. It looked fantastic. Now, our, we have a very simple mission on this show. We've made our mission. You don't even know this. We talked about this on the road trip coming up. Our mission statement on barbecue, baseball and barbecue is this. It's one of many. Okay. We're going to make your sauces number one. Okay, that means sweet baby Ray's goodbye. <laughs> All right? You will be the number one sauce. And, and our podcast, we could be in the top five. I mean, what I mean, do you think? You know, I we mean, can do it. We can, We just got to keep pushing. Just got to be working every day. That's what we're doing. That's it. Working every day. No, but I hear, you, like you said, you go to the stores. You're doing. You do demonstrations. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's important to get out and meet people and let them try the product before they, you know, commit to buying it. And right. um, and you know, make some friends and and they'll spread the word for you. Right. You know, the sauces really sell themselves once people get to try them. So. Yeah. Because you have. There's a lot of sauces that are out there. I mean. It's, it's changed so much. It used to be, you'd go to the grocery store, maybe there was, you know, the, the grocery store had their sauce, and right. then there were a couple of others on the shelves, the, you know, the, the major label ones. Right. But now you go, and, and, and the stores, they're packed. They're packed with, with sauces, 
and seasonings. But you know, uh, not everyone is like like ours. Like I said, it's it's all natural. Right. We don't well, put important. any kind of junk in it. So you, it's, you can feel good about giving it to your family. It's all right. about making choices. So yeah. whether you put it on vegetables or meat or whatever you decide, it's up to you. But at least you're starting with a good, wholesome product. Yeah, because when you go when you go to the grocery store and. It's it's all it's chemicals. I mean, I, I can't even pronounce all right. the chemicals, and, and that's that are how they're there. able to sell it for a dollar ninety nine per metric right. gallon ton. You know, right? Like this way because it's costing them nothing, so they're charging nothing. You know, ours is a little bit more. It's I wouldn't call it expensive, but you know, what we're using real ingredients, so you do get what you pay for. And Fam- it's a big bottle. Our our bottles right. are nineteen ounces. Families nowadays they want to. Uh, they want to give their families good food. You know, and they don't want to give them all those chemicals. And the other thing with your sauce is, is what people should realize, especially with barbecuing, is the sauce goes on at the end. It's right. not like you, you don't marinate. It used to be people put something in a sauce. They write chicken. Right. People would put it, the chicken and, and it was and in the sauce. The right. right. So your sauce goes on at the end, so it's you're not even using a lot of it. You're and, just layering and it And on. another thing that people don't realize is that, you know, when you serve the barbecue sauce uh, on the side, you should warm it up. It's going to taste better. It's going to give you a better mouthfeel. And if you do decide to glaze something with it, then now it's going to give it a better shine to it, and it's going to have a better eye appeal if you heat it up. Well, it's funny. A lot of the barbecues, they come with those side burners, right? Right, And right. people buy those side burners, and then you say, what have you used it for? And they say, I, I don't know. I got it, but I never used it. Right, you know? right. Well, I use it for sauce. Heat up the sauce, right. Or if you don't have a side burner, you take a little pot, you put it on the on the grill. Absolutely. It doesn't take long to right. heat the sauce yeah, up. Yeah, you just want to heat it up. You don't want to let it come to right. a boil. You don't want to boil wanna, it. You just right. want to just warm it up slightly, uh, and, and its viscosity will be better for glazing. Now, are you working on anything new? I do have some stuff in the pipeline. Obviously, I have 10 different sauces I just did, but um, nothing that I'm ready to bottle just yet. I think probably going into next year, there's a better shot of me coming out with a new product by the end of next year. Let me ask you, here at the monolith, do you like using the monolith? uh, Oh, I love it. It's awesome. It's easy to use. Um, It's really roomy. Um, And and I love the party cue with it. So it makes it, you know, it's kind of like a set it and forget it type of of, uh, piece of equipment. What are you cooking with it today? Today we're making moink balls, which are meatballs wrapped in bacon. Uh, We have pulled chicken, and we have some uh, breakfast sandwiches. They are smoked sausage on a donut with American cheese and some barbecue sauce. So if you want to ease into your day, you can start with one of those breakfast sandwiches. (laughs) On a donut. On a donut. Yeah. I mean, that's great if you ever run out of rolls. Right. I mean, it's not chocolate. It's glazed. I figure this way be a little lighter. Wow. Ray, again, great to see you today. Um, again, we, Always we will great not... to see you as well. And I'm, I have a little uh, care package for you to take oh. some sauces and seasonings for you to take Thank home you. And, and experiment with. Thank you. We're very excited. Again, baseball and barbecue. We don't stop until Ray Sheehan of Barbecue Buddha and his sauces are number one. And like I said, we'll we'll settle for top five. <laughs> Jeff, top five we're okay you know, with? Yeah. I will too. Be honest with you. No, you are no, number. No. One. no, do not settle. You do not settle. Number one, barbecue right. Buddha. So if people want to buy your sauces and rubs, and they're not in an area where they're sold in the store, where do they go? BBQBuddha.com. It's BBQBuddha.com. Thank you, Ray. We appreciate it. Thank you. Jeff, I've always said that 
doing this podcast gives us the opportunity to meet some of the greatest people. Ray Sheehan, one of the nicest guys that you're ever going to meet in barbecue. He was, he's just, he, he was a joy. Very yeah. nice. Very nice. And his sauces really are, they're fantastic. And uh, not only that, but they're, they're not filled with chemicals. Everything that he said is true. Uh, tell us again where to find, well, they got BBQ, it's BBQBUDDHA.com, gives you all the locations where you can buy them, all the types of sauces and rubs. There's recipes, there's news, uh, how to contact them. So I'm sure if you contact them, if you can't get to one of the locations, uh, I would imagine they'll ship them out to you, uh, but just get in touch with them. And, uh, I, and you Len, won't be sorry. Len, they actually have a Facebook page. So you can follow them. On Facebook. Follow them on Facebook. Follow us on Facebook. Why not? Yeah, fo- both at the same time. There you go. Okay. All right, that'll be wrapping up for this week's episode, number 46. 46. We are getting very close to our two-year anniversary in Anniversary December. number two. And... So guys, you know what we would we would love it if you would uh, call our call our number. Jeff, you want to give it again? 516-855-8214 and leave us an anniversary message. You know, I know I know we shouldn't really be fishing for uh, anniversary greetings, but if you want to call up and wish us a happy anniversary, we'd be fine with that. If you want to send us an email, uh, give us give the uh, email. It's Baseball and BBQ at gmail.com. But you know what would make a really good anniversary gift? Ooh. I could use a, uh, a monolith. You can. <laughs> We're not going to get one of those. But for my listeners, some uh, a review and, and a rating. That would be awesome. That would be great. Yeah. A review and a rating would, would help us, would increase our numbers. Uh, I'm starting to see that we're making top lists uh, for... Uh, podcasts. Uh, we're not number one yet, <laughs> but, but we're getting more mentions online, and I love it. So thank you guys. But yeah, that would be great. And with that, until next time, I'm Jeff. I'm Len, and I'm asking you guys to go see that exhibit and say hi to Neil Scherer for us. <laughs>